please be seated. Uh, Grab your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Two weeks ago, we began a series on the image of God that we're calling Imago Dei, which is the Latin term for the image of God. And we began by laying a foundation for what the image is. We started in Genesis where we said God creating man and woman, that was the pinnacle of his creation. They were created on the sixth day and they were the only ones out of all the animals and plants and planets that were created in the divine image and likeness of God. We said that means primarily two things. First, human beings were made to reflect God. We have particular capacities and attributes like God. So God has called us to reflect him and represent him on the earth as we have dominion over his creation. Second, we said being made in the image of God means we're not only to reflect God, but also to relate to God. We were designed, unlike animals, to have an intimate relationship with God, to know him and be known by him. So the intent of the image of God is that we would reflect him and relate to him as his people. But something went wrong. Sin and evil and death came into the world. And although we did not lose the image of God, it's been tarnished. So that we do not reflect God and relate to him as we should. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to save us from our sin and restore us to God's image. And he did that by perfectly reflecting God and perfectly relating to God. Jesus lived the life we never could. He died the death that we deserve. And he is our Lord, Savior, and example. That's why we said, and this was the key to the whole series, if we want to know what the image of God looks like practically, all we have to do is look to Jesus. Jesus is the image of God. He is the perfect man, the gold standard of humanity, and he is God, all in one person. That was the foundation we laid out in week one, and now what we're doing is looking at all the different areas of society in which the image of God impacts. The image of God is a doctrine that has implications for so many of the issues our culture is wrestling with. So what we're doing is asking, what does the image of God mean for this particular topic? And we're answering that question by looking at the life of Jesus, what he taught, what he did, and what he commanded us to do. We began last week with gender and sexuality, and today we take the next logical step up the ladder by looking at marriage and singleness and how they reflect God's image each in different but equally significant ways. Let's start with our first question. Here it is, number one. What did Jesus teach? And let's go back to a passage that we looked at last week, Matthew chapter 19. Uh, This is when Jesus explicitly quoted from Genesis concerning the image of God. And though we used this passage to talk last week about gender and sexuality, the bigger context here is concerning marriage and divorce. A group of Pharisees who did not like Jesus were attempting to trap him in a debate they were having amongst themselves. At the time, there were two schools of thought concerning divorce. One group of Jewish leaders taught that divorce was only allowed in the case of sexual immorality. Another group taught that a man could divorce his wife for any number of reasons, including if she cooked him a bad meal. Seriously. 
This obviously led to a host of problems in Jewish society, especially for women. Uh, Women who were divorced often lived in shame and became financially insecure while the man could just go on and remarry another woman. With that background in mind, let's look at how Jesus responds. Matthew 19, look at verses 3 through 6. And Pharisees came up to him, Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus responds by referencing two key verses in Genesis 1 and 2. First, he references the creation of mankind on the sixth day. Part of God creating people was creating them with gendered bodies, either male or female. That was intentional and a part of God's good creation. And that intention is then expressed in male and female coming together in marriage as man and woman. That's the verse referenced from Genesis 2. God says to Adam, it's not good for man to be alone, so he creates Eve. He brings Eve to Adam, and God performs what is essentially the first wedding, and they become one flesh. Verse 6 is Jesus' commentary on those verses. He says it again. He says they're no longer two, but they're one flesh. So when a couple chooses to become married, they they cease to be two independent parties, and instead they become one new person. And this union is not created by the couple who say the vows or the pastor who does the ceremony. Jesus says, no, it's, it's God who joins them together. The Apostle Paul called this a mystery. And because God joins a husband and a wife together, it is not intended that they separate. The new one flesh union is meant to be permanent. Well, the Pharisees have a follow-up question for Jesus. Look at Matthew 19 again, verses 7 through 9. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Pharisees asked Jesus, hey, why did Moses say that divorce was okay then in the Old Testament? Jesus clarifies for them that divorce was never commanded, but it was permitted because of sin entering the world, because of the hardness of people's hearts. However, Jesus makes clear that was not God's original intent for marriage. Again, God designed marriage to be one man and and one woman for life. And he makes this point even stronger by saying that to divorce and then to get remarried is to commit adultery. Now, he does give an exception to that. He says if there's sexual immorality, divorce is permitted. Not commanded, but it's permitted. But his overall point here is not in giving a way out of marriage. His point is not in taking a side in some debate. His point is to show how important marriage is and how its permanence is the key to its testimony. 
The Jewish people who were listening, especially the men, would not have been overly happy about this answer. They would have thought of Jesus as being extreme since many men divorced their wives in this time for all sorts of reasons. We know that's the case because of the disciples' follow-up question we'll get to in a minute. But here's the point that Jesus is making when we tie all this together. Here's the answer to our first question. What did Jesus teach? Jesus taught that marriage is a reflection of the image relationally. The reason Jesus spoke so highly of marriage and the reason marriage is not to be separated is because the union of marriage reflects God himself. Think about it. Where else do we see two persons in one? Where else do we see two equal persons working together in specific roles? Where else do we see such a permanent commitment of love? Well, we see those things in God himself. Let's go back to Genesis 1, verse 26, where God creates people on the sixth day in his image. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Have you ever noticed how God refers to himself here? He says, Let us, plural, make man in our, plural, image. Why was God speaking in the plural when he was the one talking? Scholars and other smart people have wrestled with this for a long time. And the consensus is that God is using this moment to reveal something very important about himself. Something that he won't fully reveal until later in the Bible when we see how God speaks about Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit. But God is revealing right here in the first pages of the Bible that he is a triune God. We refer to this as the Trinity, which is the greatest mystery and definitely the most confusing thing in theology. The church long ago explained it like this. They said, our God is one God in three persons, the three persons being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, meaning they've always existed, always will, and are of the same substance being fully God. And yet, there is one God. Make sense? Of course not. It's God. (laughs) What this means is that from eternity past, God has always been a relational God within himself. Jesus talked in John 17 about the relationship he had with his father even before he came to the earth. How they loved one another. That that means, and I know this sounds a little odd, but that means that God has always loved himself and been in relationship with himself as three persons in one God. Here's where this connects back to marriage. God created marriage to be a reflection of God's divine love where two separate but equal persons, man and woman, become somehow mysteriously one. This is why divorce is spoken against so strongly in the Bible. For a married couple to get divorced is to try and tear at the very image of God. It's to reflect him falsely and misrepresent him to the world. And please know, I don't say this to heap shame on anyone who's been divorced. God is a God of forgiveness. And I know many who have been down that road and who God has redeemed and restored and used in many mighty ways. But I say this to remind us of the seriousness of marriage. 
Marriage is not just two people deciding to live in the same house and have kids and put all their money together. Marriage is a reflection of the image of God relationally. This is why Jesus often used marriage in his parables. It's why he performed his first miracle at a wedding. This is why when Paul taught in Ephesians 5 that that marriage is ultimately a picture of the gospel. Just as marriage reflects the, the divine love within God himself, it also reflects God's divine love for us through Jesus. The relationship between Jesus and the church then becomes described as a marriage with Jesus being the groom leading through sacrificial love on the cross and the church being the bride submitting to Christ's leadership. With all this in mind, the implications for marriage and how we think of it and how we live it are immense. Though marriage is a gift of common grace, meaning all people can enjoy God's gift of marriage, whether Christian or not, we of all people should see its true purpose. That means to the married folks in the room today, we have a responsibility to reflect God in our marriages. Your marriage is one of the strongest gospel witnesses you'll ever have. People should see the gospel in the way you treat your spouse and your marriage should look different from the world's. That also means your relationship with your spouse comes first. Your spouse is more important than your parents, more important than your children, more important than your job. Your unity and one fleshness is totally unique so that other than Jesus, no one else comes first. So let me just encourage you. And again, I say this not to heap guilt on anyone, but as a fellow married person and flawed spouse myself, I encourage you, fight for your marriage. If you're barely hanging on, thinking about giving up, do whatever it takes to honor your vows. One of the best pieces of advice my wife Amber and I got in premarital counseling was this. We were told, remove the word divorce from your vocabulary. Don't you dare utter it. Don't threaten it. Don't even joke about it. Don't even think about it. Fight for your marriage. There's always a way forward. And yes, Jesus says there's an exception and a time when divorce is permissible. But that's intended to be an exception because marriage is a reflection of God's image. Let's talk now about singleness. And let me ask you this, a quick, quick poll. How many of you have heard a sermon before on marriage? Raise your hand if you've ever heard a sermon on marriage. Okay. Now, how many of you have ever heard a sermon before on singleness? Yeah, that's, that's kind of been my experience as well. We tend in church to talk a lot about marriage and why it's important. We have lots of classes and conferences and retreats and books. And and rightfully so, as I hope you've already heard me say, marriage is important. But I worry that sometimes we make it too important. And we make marriage an idol to be worshipped. We make marriage ultimate as, as if that's the reason we were created, as if that's where we find our purpose and fulfillment. Especially here in the suburbs, where we often consider that the norm. You're supposed to be married with two and a half kids, the cute dog, and lots of debt, right? 
And when that mindset makes its way into the church, we, we unintentionally communi- communicate to single people that they're just a problem to be fixed, that there's something wrong with them, that they are less than. And once you get married, then you can be a part of the real church like the rest of us. We ask young people in their 20s, oh, when are you going to get married? When are you going to have kids? And we mean well by that, but it can sometimes come across as, when are you going to be normal like us? And we make single people feel less than or other than. Listen to me, I'll say it again. Marriage is important. Statistics tell us that most people will get married. And as I said, it's the most important human relationship you'll ever have. But all of us at some point will be single. And somewhere around half of us who are married right now will one day be single again. But here's the biggest reason we need to talk about singleness today. Our Savior, the one we claim to follow, was a single man. Jesus, who we said is the image of God, the perfect reflection of God because he was God, the most truly human person to ever live, was never married. So here's our second question this morning as we think about the image of God, how it impacts marriage and singleness. Number two, what did Jesus do? Here's the answer. Jesus modeled that singleness is a reflection of the image of God functionally. Listen to me. If a single person were incomplete or lacking in some way, then that would mean Jesus was incomplete. If a single person reflects God's image less than a married person, then Jesus would not have been Jesus. He showed us what God intended for people to look like and live like, and he was a single man. We also know some of his disciples were single. Peter's the only one we know for sure that was married, though there were likely others. But even more radical was that Jesus affirmed single women. Remember, in this time, to be a single woman was to be in a bad, shameful state, mainly for financial reasons. But we read in the Gospels of women like the sisters Mary and Martha and Mary Magdalene and others who appear to be single and devoted to the Lord. Jesus goes on to talk about the value of singleness right here in Matthew 19. He finishes his spiel on marriage and divorce. And here's how the disciples respond. Look at Matthew 19, verse 10. The disciples said to Jesus, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Listen to what they're saying. They're saying, Jesus, if the only way to get out of a marriage is adultery and otherwise I'm stuck, then maybe it's just better to be single. Here's how Jesus responded. Look at Matthew 19, 11 and 12. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. This seems a little bit out of left field, so let's, let's break it down. Uh, Jesus uses the term eunuch, which in this time was someone who was unable to have sexual relations. And he lists three reasons that would have been the case. It could have been due to the way someone was born. It could have been a physical punishment, as leaders sometimes did to their servants. Or there's a third reason. 
And that's the person who he said chooses to be a eunuch. And this is likely not someone who has harmed themselves, but rather someone who has chosen a life of celibacy. Why would someone choose that? Well, Jesus says, for the sake of the kingdom. This is the person who chooses not to be married or involved with anyone sexually so as to be totally focused on the kingdom. And Jesus makes clear that this isn't for everyone, but for the one who's able to receive it. We can be confident that this is what Jesus means because Paul says the exact same thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. These are some stunning verses you'll see on the screen. Uh, Paul's talking about marriage and specifically about why couples should be intimate in marriage. So he's advocating for people to get married. Then he pivots and he says this in 1 Corinthians 7, 6 through 9. He says, now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Listen to what Paul's saying. He's saying most people should get married because they can't control themselves. I didn't say it. Paul said it. Okay? Take it up with him. (laughs) But he says it's actually a good thing to remain single if you can. Later in the chapter, verse 38, he even says this. He says, so then, he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage, listen, will do even better. He makes clear, nothing wrong with getting married. Most people will and should because you people can't control yourselves. But if you can remain single... You should, because Paul says there's an advantage that single people have over married people, and that is their ability to give the Lord what Paul calls undivided devotion. The married person has to worry about their spouse pleasing them, serving them, but the single person doesn't have those worries and therefore is able to focus fully on God. So when we put Jesus' words and Paul's words together, we see our point again. Singleness reflects the image of God just like marriage does, but it reflects the image functionally. Here's what I mean by that. The image of God came with a particular function or task. In Genesis 1, we see that it was to exercise dominion over the earth, to further and grow God's kingdom here on the earth. That's one of the big reasons we were made in the image of God. And according to Jesus and Paul, the single person can fulfill that function in a greater way. And I'll talk in our next point about what that might look like practically. But but here's what I want us to take away here. Before Adam met Eve, as a single man, he was made in the image of God. Jesus, as a single man, was the perfect image of God. And Paul, as a single man, imaged God and reflected him greater than maybe anyone else who's ever lived not named Jesus. So single people are not a problem to be fixed. They are not incomplete or unfulfilled. They are image bearers who are valuable and vital to the kingdom of God. But I don't think we always do a very good job of making single people feel like a valued part 
of our church family. Whether widowed, divorced, or just not married yet, or whether someone has the lifelong calling of singleness, we will always have single people in our church. And as I said, all of us were either once single, are currently single, or will be single again. So let me challenge you to consider how you can better include single people in your Sunday school class, in your family, and at your dinner table. Think through and consider the unique challenges of being single, especially for those who live alone. Look, we don't need a singles ministry where we take all the single people and put them in a room and hope they marry each other, right? So then they can join the rest of the church and be normal like us. No, what we need is for married people and single people living life together as a family so they can learn from one another. Married people need to learn from single people. Single people need to learn from married people. We are one spiritual family, and we need every person to be included in that family. Whether married or single, we all reflect the image of God. Here's our last point this morning, number three. Number three, what does Jesus command? Jesus commanded that both marriage and singleness be treated missionally. Missionally. Man, in today's culture, we often view marriage and singleness as ends in themselves on our quest to be happy. So some people get married because they meet someone who makes them feel happy. And they think that person is going to complete them and fulfill them. And then one day, that person stops making them happy. So they get divorced and they move on. Or like a lot of couples today, they just focus on their kids and live as roommates. Then other people stay single so they can be happy. They view a relationship as a burden, as being tied down. It would interfere with their goals and their career or chasing their dreams. They have pride in their independence. They are so much smarter and better off than those fools who fell in love and got married. But here's the truth. Neither marriage nor singleness are meant to be ends in themselves. And neither will always make us happy or content. Only Jesus can do that. And if he's not the center of your life, I don't care who you marry or how great your single life is, it will never be enough. Both marriage and singleness are gifts given from the Lord for particular times and seasons. Both have distinct advantages and challenges, and both are to be used for the glory of God and the furthering of his kingdom. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he was talking about all the different worries and concerns we have about life, and he said this in Matthew 6.33. He said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He said, don't worry about anything else. But this is the command. The kingdom comes first. That means every part of our lives, including our marriage or our singleness, should be viewed through the lens of mission. If you're married, God has given you your spouse as a missions partner. You should be prayerfully asking each other, how can we use our marriage for the mission of God. The first and most obvious way that comes to mind is through your kids. Children are also a gift from the Lord given to us to be stewarded. Psalm 127 says children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. 
They are our primary mission field. They are our first disciples. We train them up in order to send them out. And doing that requires a godly marriage. Discipleship is more caught than taught. That means our children will learn primarily through the way we live our day-to-day lives. They are always watching. That's a scary thing. The way we treat our spouse will teach them a lot about what we really believe. Listen, if you're married, you are married to someone made in the image of God. Treat them that way. And if you have kids, you are raising up children made in the image of God. Show them what that means. And for the single person, you should consider how you can use your singleness for the mission. Do you view your singleness, as Paul and Jesus both said, as a gift? I think a lot of people today view singleness as a curse. I know some of you may long for a spouse or miss terribly your spouse who has passed. And we should never make light of those who desire marriage and yet are single. But despite how you may feel, trust in God's word when it says there's actually an advantage to being single. Single people often have the advantage of greater flexibility in where they live and what they do. They tend to have greater flexibility in their time and their finances, which is why all throughout Christian history, single people have made incredible contributions, especially on the mission field. In my times leading student ministry, the best student ministry leaders I've had have been single people. And some of the strongest leaders in our church are single So while the world says singleness should make you miserable or make you prideful, instead, let it make you missional. And that's the closing word for all of us. Married or single, divorced or widowed, too young to date, too old to want to. (laughs) Whatever God has dealt you, play it to the glory of God and for the advancement of the kingdom. While marriage reflects the image of God relationally, Jesus says marriage is not ultimate. Marriage isn't even eternal. He says in Matthew 22 that in the age to come there will be no marriage or giving in marriage. I don't think that means our earthly marriages will have no bearing in heaven. I think all good relationships will have a place there. But his point is that marriage is not the most important thing. It's just a shadow pointing to the greater marriage we will have in heaven with Jesus. And while singleness reflects the image of God functionally, singleness is not eternal or ultimate either. Because again, one day we will all be married as the spotless bride of Christ, joined to him forever. So we do not put our hope in any earthly relationship. We enjoy what God gives us for the time we have it. We reflect the image of God whatever stage we're in. But greatest of all, we point people to Jesus who saves us. We show people that he's the reason we live. He's what life's all about. And we do that by being conformed to his image and reflecting him to a world in need. Would you bow your heads with me?